Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. The Ontario Liberal Party is taking the first big step to develop its 2022 platform for the next provincial election. Leader Stephen Del Duca joins us to talk about that. U.S. President Joe Biden and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau meet for the first time, virtually, of course. We'll talk about what they're going to be discussing. And the province's school testing program continues to report low numbers of COVID-19. Should the school stay open if there is a third wave? It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to focus a little bit on provincial politics and uh, and some of the things that are happening or more to the case, maybe not happening uh, at Queen's Park these days in light of the pandemic. Uh, and uh, to do that, we are pleased to welcome back to the program the uh, Ontario Liberal leader, uh, Stephen Del Duca, joins us here on the Bill Killer Show. Mr. Del Duca, sir, good to have you back on the show. Hope you're doing well these days. I'm doing okay, Bill. Thanks so much for having me back on. Well, good to have you. I got a lot of stuff, Stephen, I want to talk to you about. But first of all, uh, you have some, uh, some, I guess, housekeeping to do with the party, of course. Uh, we're still a couple of years away from the next provincial election here. But uh, you uh, are already talking about platforms and what the Liberal Party is going to be looking for right now. And uh, there's an initiative I know that you want to get off the ground here called uh, Take the Mic. Talk to us about that. Yeah, so absolutely. We We just a couple of days ago launched the official platform consultation process for the next provincial election for the Ontario Liberal Party, we're actually only 14 months away from the date that the campaign is supposed to begin. So it's, you know, it is fast approaching. And I recognize we're, we're still all grappling with the COVID-19 pandemic. But I think all your listeners will know Ontario Liberals have a lot of work to do to earn the trust of the people of Ontario. And so I wanted to make sure that we were starting, uh, starting that work. So my colleagues, Michael Coteau, MPP from the Toronto area and Kate Graham, one of our candidates from the London area, have agreed to co-chair the process. You don't have to be a party member to participate. Any of your listeners who want to can go to takethemike.ontarioliberal.ca and can participate. Let us know how they feel about issues that we're putting out there for discussion. We're trying to be a little bit edgy, a little bit provocative. We really want to hear from people, and I think it's, it's an essential and fundamental building block again, to get our party back in the fighting shape for the next election campaign, which will be here before we know it. Well, and I know some people are going to say, well, wait a second here. You know, what are you going to talk about this, that, and the other thing? I mean, because the pandemic is is, is uh, impacting just about everything. But this yeah. is the best time to actually do this because, that, as, as we've talked about in the past, what the pandemic has done and what some of the government policies have done has shone a light on a lot of the weaknesses that existed even before the pandemic started. Absolutely. And, and so over the next six weeks, we're, get, we're going to be putting out what I call two conversations per week. So interestingly, in week one, where we are right now, uh, fixing long-term care and economic dignity are the two policy themes that have now gone out on the Take the Mic website. And so fixing long-term care, obviously, it's a long-standing issue that predates the pandemic itself. But during the pandemic, we've seen how horrifying the situation has been in long-term care and elder care in Ontario. So I think that's timely as well. The other thing, Bill, is that, you know, I think on the other side of the pandemic, and look, we all hope that by the end of this calendar year at the latest, we're going to be through the worst of it and coming back to some semblance of, you know, normalcy. I think the people of Ontario are going to be looking for a leader and a party and local candidates who have that roadmap for the future, that positive forward-looking concept of where they want to take Ontario. And in order to present the very best alternative to Doug Ford and Andrea Horvath and Mike Schreiner, Ontario Liberals have a lot of work to do, so we wanted to start. There's lots of excitement, lots of momentum building, but we still have a long way to go. All right, I want to get into a couple of those issues, and let's talk about it, since that's going to be one of the first things that, that you guys are dealing with this week, is uh, long-term care. There's a lot of stuff I want to talk about, Stephen, uh, but with, it's only a three-hour show uh, with <laughs> long-term care. Because uh, sure. I, no, I've been I've been on this long time, pre-pandemic, uh, because of the shortcomings that have gone on. And, and as I say, this, this, the, the, the poor level of care, the poor staffing levels, the poor uh, compensation for people who work in these facilities, and we could go on and on and on about this. Uh, but what's really getting my goat right now and really bothering me is how this government seems to be dragging their feet on an issue that needs to be fixed and can be fixed immediately and you know while we're going to study it which is what governments always say we already know what the problems are here Stephen. we already know what the shortcomings are we already know that people are dying in those facilities and that shouldn't be happening uh, and, and, and yet they're saying yeah we're going to look into this we're going to do the staffing thing and but you know two or three years from now we should be up to speed we have we need to be up to speed yesterday not three years from now yeah, we certainly do. I think, I think, Bill, you know, the way that I look at this entire situation, and I accept that this is, this long predates the pandemic, and I, I'll say as someone who served in the last liberal government, 
while I think we made some improvements to the system, we clearly didn't get the job done, and I acknowledge that. But, I, you know, one of the things that's really interesting to me in, in some of the policy ideas that we're putting out there for discussion in the long-term care, elder care uh, sort of bucket, you know, I think, I think we have to have a complete rethink about how we deal with seniors. So my parents are both in their 80s. They would kill me, my mom in particular. She knew I would just have told the whole your whole audience how old she is. But, you know, they're, they've had some health challenges in the last couple of years. And the last thing they want to consider is going into some kind of institutionalized care. And we've set up a system through many, many years where that becomes the option of last resort, both for the senior themselves and for their families. It's brutally expensive for the families and for the public at large. It doesn't provide the very best care. It's a bit of an afterthought. There's far too much of the private sector that's focused on giving shareholders return rather than providing care in that realm. I think we have to break the system apart and start over again. And it's not just about long-term care. It's about how can we make sure our parents and grandparents can stay same, can stay safely at home for as long as possible, ideally right to the end of their time, to give them that dignity, that income sufficiency, the support they need from a community-based home care system. If they need some greater degree of care, instead of a big building that, again, is like an institution, let's use smaller home-like settings. We do this in so many other parts of our system, but we haven't done it for our seniors. So there's, in addition to paying proper compensation, full-time work for the personal support workers, better working conditions, all of the stuff that you talked about. So I really want us to completely rethink the whole thing. And I don't think Doug Ford has the interest or the capacity to go in that direction. Well, and I, by the way, I don't have a, a dog in this hunt either. But I mean, you know, sadly, my parents are both deceased, but we need to advocate for this, Steve, and we do. Uh, and I did that previously. I mean, when my mom was in, in hospice care a number of years ago, I, I hounded uh, George Smitherman, who was the health minister yeah. at the time. I said, look, you guys have got to start funding the hospice care. Well, well, and to his credit, a couple of months later, they came to the Bob Kemp Hospice here in Hamilton and said, we're going to do this. It's not enough yeah. money, but you guys yeah. got the ball rolling. Because and, and, public advocacy works in situations like this. There isn't a person in this province, Stephen, that doesn't want something done with long-term care, whether you have family members or loved ones in there or not. We understand it's horrific. We've seen the reports. Uh, one of the most damning ones, of course, was the one that the military did after they had to go in there and try to clean those, yeah. this up last year. Uh, and, and we're looking for action here. And the problem I've got with this, and I'm going to cut to the politics of this, uh, you're right. I mean, the, the overwhelming majority of these facilities are, are privately run. They're not public. That's correct. And the people on the boards of directors are former members of the Progressive Conservative Party, some of them former premiers, as a matter of fact, uh, which begs the question, why isn't this government doing anything about it? Is it because they don't want to step on the toes of, the, of their buddies in the same party? I mean, I, there's got to be a political answer to this. And, it, and, and it, I, I know they're going to deny that. I've asked the minister that, and they say, no, it's not the case at all. But come on. I mean, it's obvious what needs to be done here, but they don't want to pressure these guys because it's going to cost money and it's going to embarrass some people. I don't care. I want the best care for these people, and that's not what they're giving them. Yeah, there's definitely something that's really uh, that's really weird that's happening because, you know, Doug Ford has talked a good game after the Canadian Armed Forces report, which, by the way, was last May. Yeah. So, I mean, it's been many, many months since that report came out. Lots of good talk, lots of platitudes. Obviously, some people are whispering in his ear. And the former premier you're talking about is Mike Harris. You know, he in and, and, well, you know, I think Bill there. Davis is on one of those boards and too. And say, God bless you know, Bill Davis. I think he's great. Uh, he a fabulous guy. But, but I, you know, I don't care who's on the boards. Yeah. Step on their toes. You, you know, as as a leader, as a political leader, you've got to be able to make tough decisions, no matter who yeah. is going to be impacted by that. Well, and it has to be more than the platitudes, right? It has to be more than standing at a podium and saying the right things. You got to follow it up with competent, meaningful action. And they haven't. Uh, we know that the commission that they've struck, the report is supposed to come out in the month of April. Um, they haven't provided the proper documentation to that commission. The commission's asked for extra time. The government said no. My greatest fear in all of this bill is that the report's going to come out. The government's going to slap a Band-Aid on the current system. They're going to hope everybody, all of us, you and me included, go back to sleep on this issue because there is a lot of underlying ageism in this entire conversation. They're going to hope we all get lulled back to sleep. They're going to, you know, they're going to pump some new money into it. The feds might talk about national standards. And guess what? The next time a crisis emerges and that hit that sector gets hit hard again, we're all going to sit here and say, this is what they hope, I think. We're going to sit here and say, holy cow, we never saw that coming. I refuse to let that happen again here in the province of Ontario. So I'm going to do whatever I can as leader of my party, working with whoever wants to work on this, including other party leaders and people from across Ontario to actually fix this once and for all. 
Other countries around the world have managed to do this. For some reason, Ontario and Canada have not. But as a guy, in my case, who was really close to all four of his grandparents, it just breaks my heart that we're in this situation right now. So we got to get it done, and we got to get it done right. Well, and you, you've been in politics a long time, Stephen. And you, well, part of the problem here, of course, is it's a territorial thing. Uh, I know the prime minister's talked about national standards, and as soon as you did that, a number of the premiers, including Doug Ford, started you know, stomping their feet and saying, that's a provincial responsibility, back off, just give us the money. And, and that's going to be a problem, I get that. But look, Quebec went through the same thing. You talked about the report that came out last spring. Uh, Quebec acted on theirs immediately. They said, yeah. you know what, they, this, this thing is underfunded. Okay, we're going to pay you more. Uh, we're yeah. going to hire a whole bunch of you. We're going to train you. We'll pay for for the trading, and we're going to pay you more. They did that in the space of six weeks. We're doing it in three and a half years. Well, it's actually worse than that, Bill. So when Quebec started their recruitment drive for more staff, in particular personal support workers, which was during the summer, you're right, they've now managed to to find, train, recruit, whatever the right word is, thousands of new people to work in their long-term care sector. Guess what Ontario has done in the same stretch of time? 372. Doug Ford's government started a pilot to recruit more PSWs back in the summer, They've come up with less than 400 in the same period of time that Quebec was able to generate thousands. That just that that goes right to the heart of the issue. They don't seem to have the right priorities or values. Doug Ford and his team are looking at this from the wrong end of the stick. It's a real shame, but we it, it's more than a shame. It's actually borderline criminal, and so we like we need to figure this out. And it is something I'm determined to do. Whether I form the next government or one of the other leaders or parties does, this is something that that I'm not going to stop fighting for. And uh, we have a lot of ground to make up, but I'm convinced that we can do it. What is it? 78%, I got it off the top of my head, 78% of the people who have died from COVID in this province are members, people in the LTC. That's right. Uh, and, and that's, that's not to belittle the, the virus. I mean, it's, it doesn't just impact people, older people. We know that to, to be the case. But if we could have reduced those numbers and can reduce those numbers, that, that has to be goal one. And, and they, they're talking the talk, but they're just not doing as, as much as they could be. Because it costs money. I mean, you, you know, again, as politicians, I know that. You probably get, you know, as, as when you were in the last government, probably get 5,000 phone calls a week saying, you know, reduce my taxes, reduce my taxes. And I understand that pressure. But at the same time, the, those same people are the we're going to be the first ones that say, well, I want this, I want this. I want my, my mother's in a facility. What are you going to do about it? I want this done. Uh, there's got to be a discussion here about what this province needs and, and put a price tag on it and say, this is what we're going to do. Uh, well, I, know, I, I don't. Nobody likes paying taxes, but you know what? I want to, I'll do it because I know that those are the services that we need in this province. And th- there has to be a discussion about this right now because I'm, I'm tired of saying we're going to reduce your taxes. I want long-term care. I want better transportation. There's a, there's a long, long list of things that need to be done here. I agreed completely. And you're right. All of these solutions do require money for sure. But let's remember a couple of things. Number one, by their own admission just a few weeks ago, Doug Ford confirmed that they are sitting on or hoarding close to four, actually, no, it's over $4 billion that for a, a pandemic relief monies that they've moved into the, what they call, what governments call the contingency fund. And here we are. We only have about five weeks left until the end of the fiscal year, and they're sitting on $4 billion. Now, any money sitting in a contingency fund that gets to the end of the fiscal year goes automatically to pay down the deficit. And I'm a fiscally responsible liberal, and I don't want to waste any taxpayers' dollars. I never, I never have, I never will. But in the middle of a public health crisis, to get to the final five weeks of the fiscal year and be sitting on $4 billion, when we know, for example, small businesses are literally closing their doors permanently and putting people out of work, we know that the situation in nursing homes, long-term care is completely horrifying. Like, we know that we haven't necessarily pumped enough into our elementary schools, and the list goes on. So... Yeah, well, I'll, I'll put one right at the top of that list. I know we're, yeah. our time is tight here. Paid sick days. Yeah, exactly. Every every doctor, doctor every epidemiologist, yeah. everybody we've talked to, Stephen, in the last 14 months now about yeah. COVID has said one of the key things you have to do is supply support services, and paid sick days is one of them. And we just don't seem to get that in this province. Well, I think we all get it. I think the person who stubbornly, <clears throat> stubbornly and I think ideologically doesn't get it or doesn't care is Doug Ford. And if you look at every single one of the things he's done since the pandemic has begun, he's never had a problem stepping up to the plate to help people who, frankly, Bill, don't really need the help. Like the biggest businesses, the big box retailers that have not only survived this pandemic, they've literally thrived. Doug Ford doesn't seem to have a problem helping them. He just seems to have a problem helping all of the people in Hamilton and beyond who truly need the government's help. He's turned his back on all of those people. I don't think they're going to forget. 
And that's why we've launched our platform process, Take the Mic, because I want people to help us build a roadmap for Ontario's future that we can all be proud of. Well, there's a comment that he made just after he got elected to a private meeting with a bunch of business leaders in the Hamilton area. Uh, and it says, basically, I'll paraphrase it, because one of the leaders actually told me that this is what happened behind closed doors. He says, you know, Hamilton, you guys aren't going to get much of anything as long as you keep electing NDP members. And we've seen that happen. I mean, if you're going to make policy decisions based on partisan politics, and our listeners in London know this as well, you know, it, yeah. well, there's not a lot of government MPPs there. Well, sorry, guys, you guys, are, so, you, you know, you don't get to the table. Hamilton's in the same situation. And I got a minute and a half left. And on that point, I want to segue into a very important issue, of course, right here. You were the transportation minister, of course, under the last administration. Yeah. Uh, and you were here at Vast University with the Premier to talk about light rail transit and yeah. the funding for it. Uh, here we are now, God knows how many years later, Stephen, and uh, still it's it's up in the air. Yeah, he says that the money's still on the table if if the government uh, in Ottawa kicks in some money. Uh, how frustrated are you that this, this was your project, this is something that you and the Premier had worked on with the Mayor, and, and the, the, we, we don't even have a shovel in the ground. We don't even have an idea whether or not this is even going to happen. No, I think it's a disgrace, Bill. I really do. I mean, I know there's, there was a very hot debate in Hamilton. I know there are some people in the community, many people in the community who don't necessarily love the idea of LRT, but I think everybody acknowledges Hamilton needs more public transit, not less. And it's absolutely disgraceful to me that Doug Ford has played games consistently. He's blamed me. He's blamed the community. He's blamed City Hall. He's blamed everyone except looking in the mirror and recognizing he's turned his back on the people of Hamilton. I don't know if it's because, as you said, there are NDP MPPs from the communities, including the leader of the opposition from Hamilton. Like, I don't know what Doug Ford's up to on this one. But we all know the commutes, aside from the pandemic, commutes across the greater Toronto and Hamilton area have only gotten worse. We need more options. We need more investment. Sure, that's come to the table. That's fantastic. But that's not an excuse for Doug Ford to have turned his back on the people of Hamilton the way that he has. Uh, I am absolutely committed to building whatever needs to be built in Hamilton. I'm a believer of LRT. I think it's the right way to go. But I'd want to work with Hamilton Hamiltonians to make sure that we got it right. I mean, that discussion was started. I, I mean, I was the chair of economic development at Hamilton City Council, and that's a long, long time ago, and that's when that commitment was first made. So uh, you imagine how frustrated I am about this whole situation. Uh, as I said, Stephen, I've got a lot of stuff to talk about, and our, our time is tight. I uh, appreciate you joining us today. Uh, if folks want to get involved in this, uh, you don't have to be a liberal. Uh, you can just go onto the webpage there and, and make your suggestions as to what you'd like to see this, uh, the Ontario government handling over the next little while. Well, I'm sure we'll talk again about this very soon, Stephen. Thanks for the time today. Thanks, Bill. You stay safe. You too. Stephen Del Duca, of course, leader of the Ontario Liberal Party. And uh, good to have uh, that kind of input from the public about uh, developing policy. So as I say, it's a year and a half away until the next provincial election. But, uh, well, people are talking already about the issues that need to be talked about and try to make this a better place to live. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, meeting that's uh, going to be scheduled for later on today, a virtual meeting, of course, between President Joe Biden and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, is actually a, a carryover from a tradition that was started back in the Reagan days, uh, where the first official visit that, that an incoming U.S. president would make would be to Canada. Uh, it just doesn't have to be a state visit necessarily, but just like Obama did, remember, just after he got elected, uh, where he popped in for the day in Ottawa and uh, met with the Prime Minister and uh, went and got some cookies for his little girls, of course, over at the byway market. Remember that? Yeah, a lot of attention to that. Uh, I don't know. Obviously, in a virtual meeting, that's not going to happen. It's not going to be face-to-face, but boy, they've got a lot to talk about. Uh, Terry Pedwell reports. The two leaders have spoken by phone already, but this will be the first official meeting between Justin Trudeau and Joe Biden since Biden formally took office, even though they won't be in the same room. They're expected to speak about their shared visions on the environment and their differences, such as Biden's cancellation of the Keystone XL pipeline. Trudeau will be looking for help from Biden in securing the release from China of Canadian detainees Michael Kovrig and Michael Spaver. Canada will also be seeking exemptions from protectionist measures that favor American contractors and suppliers for big U.S. infrastructure projects. Terry Pedro, the Canadian Press. Yeah, let's, let's talk about some of those issues. Uh, Laura Babcock joins us, president of Power Group, and uh, always a pleasure to have you on this program. Uh, if they're going to talk about China, right off the bat, I'm wondering if Biden's going to say, what's up with that vote yesterday? I mean, uh, you know, when there's a motion forward to, to, to basically condemn the Chinese government uh, for the genocide against the Uyghur Muslims in China, and, and the prime minister ducked the vote. I mean, is that leadership, Laura? 
I think it's a very bad decision by Trudeau. I understand that he had other strategic diplomatic considerations. He's trying to get the release of those two Canadians in China. He's dealing with other issues with China. There, you know, we're we're integrated so much with their trade. I understand that he sees a view of the China relationship and and some of those moving parts that maybe the public doesn't have access to. But the fact of the matter is that. Trump, before he left, went ahead and said it was a genocide. Biden, according to international media reports, is intending to continue with that description of what's happening and continuing to pressure the Chinese. And the public sentiment has clearly in this country moved towards really addressing that issue as a genocide, including other groups that are pushing for a delay or moving of the of the Olympics in China unless they stop their practice that they have against these minority groups. So this minority group. So This is a point where the world is standing up to China, and I know that Trudeau would have preferred to have a multilateral approach, you know, get everybody some sort of a resolution to put pressure on China, but O'Toole was clever. He pushed the button quickly. It was impossible for backbench, even backbench liberal MPs not to go along with the motion, and I don't really think that it matters to China whether it's non-binding or whether Trudeau and his cabinet abstained. Canada's repudiation of China is making international headlines, China's angry about it. And I think Trudeau's only option now is to really talk to Biden and say, listen, uh, you know, what can you do to help us with China to both help release these people? But also, uh, we have a non-binding vote here about it being a genocide. You've already taken that step. Maybe even if China or even if uh, the U.S. and Canada can start to work together on this issue. It will give Trudeau some of the support that he needs. But the abstention, that technical abstention from doing the vote, I think was just a bad look. If you're going to lead on values, if you're going to have that position in the world that Canada has enjoyed for a long time, then you have to take the hard calls. You have to make those kind of moves. Uh, So it was a mistake, at least from a public relations perspective, for Trudeau. It reminds me of my good friend Alan Carter from Global News. Uh, of course, he used to be the Queen's Park correspondent. Uh, and he, at one time, after a very frustrating period with uh, with Andrew Horvath in the, in the you know the media scrum at Queen's Park, he says, "For God's sake, Andrew, would you buy a copy of the Kama Sutra and learn how to take a position?" Uh, which I, was kind of a backhanded you know spot at him. But th- this is the whole thing. I mean, take a stand on this. I mean, this is an international issue. Uh, and and the problem that I've got with this is that they've been trying for God knows how many years. I guess as long as, as just and Trudeau has been prime minister to try to placate China because the now especially because of the two Michaels it doesn't pay off. They, China doesn't do us any favors. They never have. They continue to spy on our international on our, on our corporations. Uh, they were trying to infiltrate the government. The Huawei situation goes on, and every time he tries to turn his back and say, "Yeah, it's terrible what they're doing," but we're not really going to take an official position. They laugh at him. I'm sure they do. I mean, I. I I, I want to see our government stand up to this, and I, I want to see Joe Biden do it too. But I mean, you know, I'm talking about right here at home. Where is the leadership? Well, here's the thing: is that this issue? I mean, we're we're starting to all learn more and more about what's happening with what China is doing and how they're treating these these minorities. And it a lot of it sounds, you know, eerily similar to things that were coming out of Germany. The the idea of camps, and I'm not suggesting that they're doing what the Nazis did yet or that we know of or whatever. I'm not making that kind of a leap. But the but how much more detail do we need to hear before we say this is something that is a genocide? I mean, forced sterilizations, putting people into camps. I don't care what they label the camps. Right? Uh, you know, it's The world sees what is happening, and China is always going to come out and say, no, you've got misinformation, you don't know what you're talking about, get out of our domestic affairs. But what's the point of having the United Nations and having uh, these kind of things like international games that the world can't say? Listen, what's going on there is wrong. We have historic parallels, at least in some ways, to what is happening, and we, we need to act before things get so much worse. You know, what are we as a global body if we can't stand up for human rights? What does it even mean? And that doesn't mean that Canada doesn't also have its own issues with human rights. It doesn't mean that China can't come back and say, you know, look in your own backyard, there's still boil water advisories, you know, with your first you still haven't gotten your human rights under um, control. I mean, they have the right to come back and push back on Canada's record. But globally, Canada can't stand on the world stage, Bill, and put forward that we have all of these values and that we protect human rights 
if we don't stand up when we're starting to see all kinds of reports about what's happening in China. And this is a moment where China has a little bit of exposure. They have a big games coming. And there is already talk of a potential boycott if they don't do something with the situation that's in China happening with these minorities. So the public pressure is mounting. The opportunity is in front of everyone with the 2022 Olympics. And Canada loses all kinds of respect if they can't take a strong stand. And to your point, you know, is, is, is being nice to China publicly on this issue going to make any difference on any of those other things? I don't think so. I mean, usually in politics and diplomacy, there's a certain amount of power and leverage that's needed. Trudeau's best thing is to have Biden take a robust position and then to move with Biden on anything that they can do to get the situation under control with China and hopefully bring in a multilateral approach after that. But to, to abstain from a vote... Uh, I think just sends a really bad signal that they're not actually following through with what they say, and and that's never a good look for a politician. Well, and I know Biden said that he wants to, you know, bring G7 back uh, to the forefront. I mean, Trump has crapped all over all that stuff, and Biden's got some fences to mend when it comes to that. And I'm I'm hoping that's going to be because I I agree with you. I think, and, and again, the Prime Minister's statement last week about you know ban or boycotting the Olympics, where he said, well, it's up to the uh, Olympic Committee here in Canada. No, it's not. It's a political choice, uh, and he's he's got to take a stand on that too. And I'm, I, I, maybe they're going to talk about that today. I don't know because they got a lot of other things to talk about too. Uh, these guys are buddies. Uh, they're they're not. Uh, I don't think the Prime Minister has any expectation he's going to have the same kind of rapport he, well, with Biden as he did with uh, Barack Obama, Biden's old boss. Uh, that, there was a, a, a pretty strong bond there. But notwithstanding that, Laura, notwithstanding the fact that I think Biden has a global view of what the United States' role is, uh, there's going to be some pretty tough discussions here about trade, about Buy America, and a lot of other things. I mean, you know, everybody labeled Donald Trump. It was easier to hate Donald Trump because of his protectionist views. Uh, but it, that was not a Republican policy. That was an American policy, and it's, it, I don't think it's going to budge anytime soon. Right, of course. And so, you know, even with your neighbor, you can have disputes over certain things, right, even with your best friends. And I think that's how they come into this conversation is that, you know, they even though uh, they're not, you know, Canada has an incredibly important integrated trading relationship with the U.S. The U.S. also has one with China. So these things, there's lots of facets to them that it's not simple. It's never as simple as we see even out here, right? Um, there's a lot of nuance that they have to discuss, but fundamentally, what are the shared values? I mean, they are both prioritizing climate change. Biden made that crystal clear mm -hmm. when he got back into the Paris Accord. And so that's a strong alignment right there. Now, does it impact what happens with the pipelines? It does. And Trudeau has to make the case of, of the jobs and the mitigations needed and the other pipelines, like the one uh, coming into Sarnia that they have to talk to. He has to have a clear understanding on where the Biden administration is going around all things pipelines. And, and they have to figure out a way to make sure that the Canadian economy and our trade doesn't take too massive debilitating a hit when Biden goes through with his, you know, Buy America policy. I think we're going to see a lot of countries coming out of COVID investing in their own domestic infrastructure, investing in their own domestic production, investing in their own domestic purchasing to help their economies recover. So I don't think it's, you know, totally outrageous that Biden is pursuing with that, that kind of a policy, but it's a about looking at, okay, where are ways that maybe Canada can have some exceptions? Where are ways that we can continue to work together so that it doesn't do too much damage to our trade? And that's the kind of conversation that I think you can have with a good neighbor, with a good partner, with someone who shares other values with you. So we're, it doesn't have to be a bromance, you know? We're not going to see people, you know, go crazy over pictures of the two of them looking at each other someday. But it <laughs> does have to be based on the fundamental things that tie us together, that we can work on and achieve together on the world stage, uh, and how much we need each other. And, you know, we're not going to win on all fronts. Trudeau's not going to get everything he wants, but I think he's got a good partner in the call. Yeah, and it, there's politics in this. There always is, of course. And Biden promised this Buy America thing a long time ago, as he did about the cancellation of the pipeline. I mean, we knew that was coming. The only person in America that probably wanted that pipeline was Donald Trump anyway, and we, so we knew that was going to happen. But people tend to forget. I mean, you have short memories, I guess. Uh, the Obama administration developed a Buy American policy as we all tried to pull ourselves out of the 2008-2009 recession. Uh, but there were exemptions made. They didn't say, okay, Canada, you're off the hook. But it was... It was done on a one-off basis with steel and a whole bunch of other things and I'm, I'm anticipating that they're not necessarily going to find a resolution to that today but at least leave the door open to say yeah let's talk about the issue by issue and we can probably work something out well as much as some progressives in the in the democratic party you know on 
uh, may not love the traditional approach that Biden takes to politics and diplomacy and working across the aisle and his language around all of that. there is something to that predictability of that kind of a negotiating partner. And that's something that the, the previous Trudeau government did not have with the previous Trump administration, right? This, Trump's whole thing was his unpredictability. And so Biden is a predictable person. I'm sure he's got a very, he's already trying to put through predictable people uh, to be both in his cabinet and to senior positions in his administration. They are going to follow more traditional methods of discussing nuance and finding compromise and doing that hard work that comes with those kind of one-off exceptions. So again, we're not going to get everything we want, but we're at least working with a partner who is going to have a predictable methodology for these negotiations. And I don't expect that there's going to be any sidewinders coming from Biden in terms of issues, right? I think that we're going to have a good sense of where his administration is going. They've been very communicative, very clear, uh, and it's for Trudeau to work within that. We are, as always, the most to the elephant. You know, they've got far more power, but I do think that they want Canada to do well, and they want to work with Canada on important issues like China. I want, to ask you, I want to get your read on, on Joe Biden, if I could. Uh, one of the great things you guys do with Power Group, and I've heard from a number of your clients over the years, Laura, is, is the way that you analyze how people operate, how they present, how they get their facts across. I mean, a great message can be lost if somebody doesn't know how to do this. Uh, how do you rate Biden as, as a communicator? Well, I think that Biden, uh, so thank you for that, and I think that Biden understands his own limits which is why we saw him take a very serious recalculation after he came into the campaign, after he really won the South, uh, when it looked as though he would be the nominee. We have seen a real message discipline. A couple of times he said, you know, I want to let my my Irish temper out or whatever he said, Um, but he has restrained it and restricted it. He understands that he is not a high orator like Obama. He understands that when he goes off the cuff, he often makes, you know, Biden, Biden uh, foibles. He was famous for those flubs. So he hasn't been doing that. Instead, what he's been doing is relying on a team of communication experts who have been pretty solid. And the only real mishap he's had, which is pretty amazing given how long the campaign was and all the issues that came up, uh, the only real mishap since he's been president has been clear communication around the vaccination of teachers and and schools reopening. That's the only thing where they've really been kind of found to be out of alignment uh, in their different statements. But he himself has reined himself in, put himself into his own guardrails, understood that when he speaks in a direct, somber kind of way, it is the voice of leadership and and security that Americans crave right now. And he is doing a very good job with that. Can he sustain that? You know, that takes a lot of discipline, Bill, as you know, Mm -hmm. uh, to be able to stay within those guardrails and understand your own limitations and not try to um, mess that up. So right now it looks like he's doing an extremely good job. He understands his strengths. He understands his weaknesses. And he's putting, uh, he put out a great tweet yesterday, for example, that said, if there's one message I want to cut through, it's uh, that the vaccinations are safe. So, I mean, he understands how to use Twitter. Uh, and uh, so I, I'm pretty impressed so far. I get the sense, I don't know, we get it. Wait, we got a minute left here. Uh, he listens to the people around him. I mean, Trump never did. I mean, you know, just need to read the Bob Woodburg and, and, and other books, you know, from people like Mike Schmidt and everything. That, that you know, everybody in the uh, Trump administration was just there for window dressing. But, but apparently the people that he consults with actually apparently have, they have a, a road to, to listen to him and, and he listens to them. Trump, or sorry, Biden has the kind of ego that you need to think that you should run you know, the most powerful job in the world. Uh, but he isn't led by his ego in the sense that he has repeatedly shown evidence that he will listen to criticism, that he will absorb a critique, that he will put around him a team. I mean, his communications team, last time I checked, were an all-women's team, which I, I think is pretty awesome. That's my bias. But he is he's in a place where he's saying, I can take critique. I don't think I'm above it. I don't think I'm I'm great at everything. He knows his limits. And some of the best leaders I've ever worked with or ever seen, Bill, are the ones who have a strong enough ego to know their own vision and their own values and that they can lead, but also understand their limits and bring around smart people to help them. Those are the ones who really make a success out of it all. Laura Babcock from Power Group. As always, Laura, thanks so much for this. Great talking with you again today. My pleasure, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Some epidemiologists are telling us that a third wave of uh, COVID-19 may actually be inevitable. That's pretty strong language, of course, but we've seen it happen. Well, the UK for one. But if that should happen or if there is a spike, uh, do we close the schools again? I mean, the premier said, you know, if he sees the numbers going up, he's going to take action. 
and schools are usually part of the thing that gets targeted in situations like that. Well, Ontario school testing programs suggest that the classroom may in fact be the safest place for students to be if that happens. Global's Dave Woodard reports. The province has mandated that school boards have to test a minimum of 5% of schools per week and at least 2% of those have to be students. But with new, more contagious variants surfacing in the province, critics say the testing needs to be expanded and more safety protocols have to be brought in. Education Minister Stephen Lecce has promised that once the program is fully up and running, health units will be able to get through up to 50,000 of these tests each week. Last week, five schools had been closed down across the province because of outbreaks, while 255 schools were reporting at least one case of COVID-19. Dave Woodard, Global News. So where are we with this? And Because there's an ongoing discussion and debate and maybe a lot of misinformation too about uh, the, the virus and uh, the impact that it has on children especially. Joining us to talk about all of this is uh, Dr. Zane Shagla. Dr. Zagla, of course, is an infectious disease specialist from St. Joe's Hospital and an associate professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases in the Department of Medicine at McMaster University. Uh, doctor, good to have you with us again. Thanks so much for the Always time today. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Have, have, have we got a clearer picture as to the impact that this virus is having on kids because we're getting mixed messages i mean there are some people as i'm sure you've heard uh that think that this doesn't impact kids at all we know that's wrong but but are they carriers or are they prone to this uh, virus what what's what's your read on what you've learned so far yeah i mean in in kids in schools really is the big thing right so yeah. i think we we all understand kids can get the virus that kids can transmit the virus i think that that was something that was debunked really early in the pandemic it's where the role of schools play in all of this. And, and, you know, again, kids can bring in the virus from the community. That's well established. Kids can transmit in schools. And, you know, as we talked about, there's outbreaks that occur in schools of a few cases that are, you know, that are, we are pretty certain transmit within the four walls of the institution. Um, the question that still comes back and forth is, do those kids going back into the community then set off chains of transmission in their community, or are they relatively contained to their homes? And, you know, a lot of data from different experiences and different places do suggest different things. You know, there is some data from the United States and the UK that really does suggest that those, those chains of transmission tend to be localized. They tend to be at the home, and, and they really don't ripple back into the community at that point. But there are a couple of other studies suggesting potentially that it does drive some community transmission, too. So that's where much of this confusion comes from, is, is the definition isn't clear, the way you study it isn't clear, um, and, uh, and again, looking at it from different standpoints can give you sometimes altering results. It's been almost like a chicken and egg argument, hasn't it? Mm -hmm. Initially, you know, when you see a spike in the in the in the general population, you see a spike in schools. Uh, you know, which caused which in situations like that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we saw this in September, right? There was yeah. transmission ongoing in our community. We were all mobilizing people. When kids go back to schools, parents go back to workplaces. You know, and so to to tease out exactly what's the driver here is relatively difficult. The one thing I'll say though is. Even in the last two months, we've realized something in Canada, outside of Ontario, much of the country has been able to also slow down their COVID-19 transmission. In Ontario, we were the only jurisdiction that shut down schools as part of their problem, or part of the process. Um, and, you know, all of us have kind of gotten to the same result of rates decreasing in that sense. So it's not all schools that will be driving community transmission. And there are ways to control high levels of community transmission Proof of principle in Canada don't involve shutting down schools entirely. How worried are you about the uh, the variants that we've talked about over the last couple of weeks? Yeah, I mean, I think we we have the potential for these variants to spread very quickly, especially in congregate settings, in places where physical distancing, masking, and public health precautions aren't adhered too much. We saw this in Newfoundland, you know, in a high school that really yeah. got seeded, that set off their community transmission in that sense. Um, you know, I think it's it's something that needs to be monitored for. I do think in Ontario, though, and one thing that does get discounted with the variants is we have been living in a state of precaution for some time. I think we've been one of the hardest hit provinces. And realistically, all of us have pretty much engaged with physical distancing, hand hygiene, masking, even in our restrictions in Hamilton. You know, we can't all pack into a restaurant or a bar. It's only 10 at a given time. Uh, and so, you know, we still have a lot of controls in our society, the way we live in it, presumably until the summertime, that will still limit these things from spreading in high capacity ranges. Plus, at least in Ontario, 
we have the ability to detect these. And I think we're ahead of the rest of the country in terms of detection in that sense. Because I, I, I wanted the follow-up to that is, is, is people's attitudes about this. I mean, a year ago, Doctor, uh, when we started to discover just how enormous this was and, and how dangerous it was, uh, we were scared. I mean, we didn't know anything about this virus. Mm-hmm. I mean, talking about the general population, uh, we saw some of the, the, the numbers of people that were hospitalized and dying. We thought, my God. And, and I think our, our worst fears were realized when we saw some of the numbers. But I, I'm getting the sense that over the last eight or nine months that a lot of people are just kind of saying, you know what, it didn't impact me or my family. Yeah, it's, it's terrible for the people that are doing it, but we, we're surviving. We're getting through this. But now, with this variance that we're talking about, the UK variants and the, and the ones from South Africa and, and all these over the year, when they say it's it's more infectious and it could be more fatal in situations like that, uh, a lot of people are saying, "Yeah, they said that last time." It's it's like the chicken little thing. Yeah, the sky is falling. But are we taking enough precautions? Are we worried enough about this to be able to stem this off if it does start to come in? It already yeah, has, I mean, really. It's completely unknown territory, right? And, and and that's the big part of this. You know, what happened in the UK when this started transmitting was a combination of a more transmissible variant, which we're seeing. It's replacing our strain as we're, we're sitting here talking in Ontario. But you also had a free and open society where people were congregating. They were pre-Christmas. People were out and about. And I think it was the it may have been the combination of the two that really led to that catastrophic event that got seen in the UK and Ireland. So, yeah, I mean, I think we still need to be precautious. I mean, the good news is is places like Ireland and the UK and Denmark and much of the EU and even South Africa has been able to bring down their rates almost back to normal. Um, and, and so, you know, we know the public health rules, provisions, and, and that type of thing still work really well for these variants. I think as we start opening, though, we do have to maintain a, a pulse on what's going on and unfortunately be able to react to it relatively quickly. Well, to do that and uh, to keep track of numbers, is the rapid testing protocol effective enough? I mean, again, more getting more cases identified is better than not, right? And, yeah. and in schools, I think adding rapid testing and, and surveillance testing at least gives us a, a canary in the coal mine. Not only that we know that things are transmitting in schools when the surface doesn't seem like it but also you know again even in the work in Thorncliffe Park looking in schools often gives you a sense of what's undiagnosed in the community and so when things are getting out of control particularly in areas of Toronto and Peel that have had a significant amount of community transmission if you're seeing a lot of cases showing up in the school especially asymptomatic cases that are picked up by rapid tests you have a good sense there's a lot going on in the community that you don't really have diagnosed, and it may be much worse than the numbers actually show. So with that in mind, and, and uh, you know, the fact that, you know, we were opening up again slowly but surely, of course, in the province, uh, you know, the lockdowns are being lifted in most of the areas of the province right now. Uh, every time we've done that, there has been a spike. So are we anticipating that we're going to see at least a blip, if not a, a spike in numbers in the next 10 to 14 days, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I would, I would probably say it's a little longer than that. I mean, but we will probably see some rise in cases. I mean, it's normal. The one part of this that's so hard to tease apart is our use of public health interventions and restrictions do influence our behavior too, right? And, it, you know, often when things get very serious and we lock down, people do get it. They stay at home more. Uh, and some of those chains of transmission end that way too. And so... You know, I, I think as you do relax, people's also attitudes may relax with them. Uh, and uh, and again, you're probably going to see some mixing, some increasing contacts person to person, which unfortunately does lead to more transmission. The hope is with things like the emergency break, the ability for local public health units to really react to their epidemiology, that they are able to limit things relatively quickly before it gets out of control and hopefully, again, the more time we buy for vaccines, the more time it is that these impacts aren't felt necessarily in hospitalizations or death. So in anticipation of that and whatever's going to happen with these variants, and we know that they're out there and they're already in this community, a number of your colleagues have already suggested that if we do see a spike and governments will respond to that one way or another, whether it's going to be to lock down or more restrictions or whatever. Uh, but they suggest that the school and the school environment is probably the best place for kids to be if that should start to happen. What, what are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think we saw this in Canada. You know, we kept schools open in Quebec, in Alberta, and British Columbia when they went through the same surge that we saw in, in December and January. Um, you know, knowing that that schools are particularly precious, if we are able to, you know, maintain other places in society and, and unfortunately close other places in society to maintain schools, uh, knowing that that's an acceptable risk, I think we, we really do need to have serious discussions on this. And, and again, I would exhaust every other option from a societal standpoint before necessarily invoking school closures, knowing they can be managed, outbreaks can be managed, public health resources can be diverted there, and the potential impacts to children are so profound that, you know, there is there is something to be said about risks and benefits here, favoring risks and closing schools. Well, and that's, again, since you, know, you, you brought up the whole concept of data, I'd like to see numbers that say, okay, closing those schools for a two- or three-week period were actually effective in doing something. We know that province-wide the numbers did go down, but was that a factor in this? I mean, I... But just before Christmas, I remember I had the education minister, Mr. Lecce, on the program here, and he vowed, he says, no, 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 we're not going to extend the Christmas break. They're going back to school and whatever the date was. And 24 hours later, they changed it, which I'm sure was based on some information they got from their, their medical consultants and situations like that. But I, I don't see the data necessarily to suggest that, you know, if we close everything down, that the kids are going to be fine because the numbers have been pretty st- consistent, have they, about the number of, of juvenile cases of this? Yeah, I mean, it's been persistent. Again, over Christmas, there were some issues, and I think that informed the decision Mr. Lecce made. The percent positivity did go up in kids, but there was also big issues about kids getting tested. You know, over the holidays, if kids are out of school, they're not going to go get tested, as opposed to when they're in school, because it's a requirement to get in if you have minor symptoms. Parents are more incentivized to get their kids tested, right? And so... Mm. Some th- there were some issues with the data during that interval. But again, the proof of principle is across Canada. They were able to bring their epidemics down with schools being open, but focusing on the rest of society. What about the mental health aspects of this? I, I know you're not a pediatrician, but I mean, you, you, as, as a doctor, you're looking at the whole picture here. And, you know, the idea of, of saying, okay, the kids are going to stay here, stay there. Uh, homeschooling has been a problem. Parents are getting stressed out. Kids that are getting homeschooled are getting stressed out right now, which, which seems to indicate that the longer we keep the schools open in that environment, which where, where you know some of those safeguards are already in place, uh, the better off they're going to be. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say schools are the perfect place for all mental health issues. There's obviously bullying and other things, but you're right. The, the ability for kids to be out there, to have some independence, to actually interact with others. I mean, we're seeing this in terms of, uh, you know, eating disorder rates going up, and that was shown at the Ontario Science Table. Um, you know, there are other probable outcomes that are probably going up in kids. It's hard to diagnose, obviously, anxiety in kids. It's not a thing that's talked about it much in and really worked up as much. Um, but, you know, we know this is happening. And again, there's going to be impacts outside of this pandemic. Yes, kids are resilient, but their ability to socialize, interact with others, have independence, not be on screens, you know, that there are impacts of all of this. The, uh, the reality that we have to face, too, and I think you and I talked about this some months ago, is uh, that in many, many instances there are multi-generational families living under the roof where, where some of these kids uh, go back to when the school day is finished. And the, the concern is not necessarily that the kids may get sick, but that they could actually, if they are positive or not even know that they're positive or asymptomatic, uh, they could bring it into the house and it could have a, a, a horrific impact on other people within that house. Yeah, absolutely. And, and add to that the fact, you know, as much as we don't, talk about schools being a place for parental supervision of children during the day, many of those households are, are you know, paycheck to table and, and really parents need to work in there. You're bringing in other caregivers, you're bringing in other people to deal with kids if they have to be set at home. And it even creates more problems in that community to, to actually then close schools. You may open up other chains of transmission. Not to say that it's uh, you know, that more than what would be accepted in schools, but it is a downstream risk that we don't talk about as much. I want to get you read on something else. We saw this story last week, uh, and they finally got some data about what was going on in Africa with the virus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then, as you know, initial reports, 
excuse me, uh, indicated that it seemed to have bypassed the continent, and that's not the case. It was a reporting problem, but there was a uh, disproportionate number of young people, especially kids, uh, with the virus. Uh, you know, we've always talked about it. it doesn't seem to have much of an impact, but it did in, in, in African countries as well. Uh, what, what would be the cause? Is it the living conditions? Would that be a factor? Yeah, I mean, I, I think people who who thought this was very different in in Africa, you know, as someone who's practiced in East Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, we know healthcare systems aren't robust. You know, for us to get tested in Canada, it would be impossible for many in Sub-Saharan Africa to get tested, right? And and so mm-hmm. people live with the disease. They can't access healthcare. There was a good autopsy study in Zambia that was done that suggested 20% of people in their morgue had died of COVID-19. And the average age in that morgue was 40 years old. They had other diseases like HIV, diabetes, and tuberculosis, Mm -hmm. but a lot of them still had COVID-19 as well. And so, you know, I think for all of us who are trying to make these international interpretations and say, why is this country doing well and this country isn't, there are huge reporting issues. There are huge differences on how people access care. Uh, and and really, it is unfair comparisons until you understand the context of that that economy and that society. Yeah, which is what we figured was going to be the case too. You, you can't compare an apples to apples comparison with what's going on in in that particular part of the world with what's happening in North America, can you? No, absolutely. Again, there's a big difference, and again, it has to be interpreted in the context. They can't be apples to apples, as you said. And again, the, the comments from some of your colleagues suggesting that this third wave, uh, well, I, I've heard the word inevitable, and I, I like to think that's not necessarily the case. Uh, is there a way that we can flatten this curve before it actually becomes uh, a problem? I mean, uh, you know, we're doing what we're supposed to be doing right now with the social distancing, uh, mask wearing. I think everybody is pretty much on side with that sort of thing right now, too. Uh, limited openings. Is, are, are we using everything in the toolbox right now? Yeah, I mean, I think people can still act like they did prior to two weeks ago in Hamilton, right? They can still minimize their gatherings, really keep their households empty outside of their direct household, engage with society for low-risk stuff when you need it, um, and uh, and for the most part, still continue to try to work from home. Try to do those things that were working between December and January. Again, the Early Intervention and Act is probably going to be the big thing, and I think this is the one time we'll see as these numbers start rising thankfully because of our vaccine campaign in long-term care we're not going to necessarily see that component get be infected we are going to see community dwellers get sick though and it's not an excuse not to uh, continue with our measures but at least there is some comfort knowing that that sector is at least taken care of temporarily uh, even if we do get an increase in transmission Absolutely. Doctor, always a pleasure. Uh, Great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for the time today. No problem. All the best. Take care. You too. Dr. Zane Shagla, of course, from uh, St. Joe's and McMaster University Medical Center. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.